Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertia Morgana by P.D. Ospensky. Today we are discussing Chapter 8 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 2. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Stephanie Oldfield, university graduate majoring in psychology and English. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Steph for joining me. Okay, well, welcome Pete and Steph. Hi. So we're halfway through Chapter 8 and we're up to a sentence where we have a little bit of conjecture because of the 1920 published version, which is the version of the book that we're covering, uses uh, a term of conscious action when it's explaining uh, definition thereof, whereas in the later editions of the book, that word conscious is substituted with the word rational. So I'm going to start with the quote from my book and we're looking at what comes after instinct. When animals have instinct, and instinct is what Spensky has explained, is an uh, evolutionary thing that the, the animal will, or the species, will adapt to ensure that they survive. So it's a, it's a pleasure-pain um, reaction. And it's not something that they consciously do. It's, and the species evolves based on how well they uh, survive and that becomes an instinct. He then goes on to say, after instinct come those actions which are conscious and automatic. So we are talking about the animals at the moment. And just to recap from last week, Aspensky is trying to draw an analogy to a lower level of consciousness than ours by using animals He's trying to, um, what is he trying to do, Pete? <laughs> Listen, I, I, I mean, with all, all due respect to Mr. Uspensky, what a moron. <laughs> this, whole next, this whole next bit, I can evidentially, through my empirical experience right here, right now, going back through all my life of having pets and animals, absolutely 100% categorically Dispute, disprove and refute every concept of this next half of this chapter. What he's trying to do, first of all, you used a, a term there when you were in, introducing it, lower form of, of existence. Well, if he's coming from that point of view, we can stop right there because they're not, for one. And he touches on certain things that he doesn't even seem to realise um, what he's touched on as we go through this. I'm not going to go... I'm not going to take us ahead because we'll have a lot of fun with, with what he says in, in a moment. But um, what he's trying to do, I, I don't even understand why we have to bring three dimensions into it because he doesn't talk about space and time in this last half of the chapter. And I was quite thrilled to have got away from that. Uh, we, were talk, we were talking about the experience of living, well, any, any living being um, here that we, we're surrounded with. And he's talking about our experience being somehow superior. Uh, remember, we had that incredible, incredible part from him where he even considered some human beings to be lower species. 
So we shouldn't be surprised at how he treats animals. I find it very, very difficult, though, because, first of all, the science has moved on so far. I mean, so far since he comes out with some of these statements. And I'm finding it difficult, whether it's translation or not, to, to actually accept the certainty with which he seems to think we should accept what he's put down there. We can take it as a given, we'll move on. Well, I don't take any of this as a given. Like I didn't take as a given the fact that native Australian people are some kind of savage lower life forms. But I mean, coming back to this, um, you know, there are there are certain premises that I find it really difficult. For him. And like I say, when we come to these points that he, that he makes, uh, we'll go through them one at a time and I'll give you solid experience and anecdotal evidence that I have where he's not just it's his opinion might be a bit flaky. He's damn well wrong. Full stop. Period. So and, and that's before we start talking about what the um, investigative scientists in this field of study have been doing, which makes makes what I can tell you, you know, tiny. Um, they scientists that are working in this field will tell you that this is completely cobblers. But they will also tell you that they are not certain about things in the way that Uspensky seems to be certain about things. They'll know that they've still got things to work out as well. But they've they've moved down the track um, a long way from from Uspensky's certainty. Oh yes, well we can take this as a given. So let's move on, and I'll tell you something else that's that's shaky because it's based on this foundation that I can't prove. Anyway, so so you know that this this is a really interesting piece to go through the second half of this this chapter because the world has changed so much since he wrote this. But he's trying to talk about things. He's trying to lead us into an investigation of human consciousness based on. These ideas, it's interesting. Let's let's see where we go. Anyway, you asked and I gave. Thank you very much because I have now found the piece of the, the, piece of the puzzle that, that will start this off. We, we are, what Aspensky is, is looking at is saying, well, you know, what can we, if we're looking at uh, analogy as to, well, as I said before, something that has lower consciousness. He says, let us put the question, are there beings in the world standing towards us in the necessary relation whose psyche is of lower grade than ours? So I think he does use the word psyche again, and so that probably isn't consciousness. He's talking about receptivity, his receptors. He's talking about that do not have the same um, uh, mental capacity, the same... Um, interaction with the outside world. As How does he know this? Well, How does he know let's this? just get to that. We're going. No, to but he's to making that. an assumption that he makes an assumption that that's what's happening, and I I don't accept it. But that's exactly what my point was. No, I'm with you there. And so he says, such physically, um, is that physically, no, such psychically inferior beings undoubtedly exist. These are animals. I can't even read. <laughs> I'm hopeless today. All right, it's all these technical issues we've had. I've just not... not... Okay, so... Oh, come, come on, Al, you're doing okay. You're doing great. Come on. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You are, you're so... doing brilliant. This is, this is fun. I've been looking forward to doing this. Don't stop now. <laughs> I'm not stopping this, now. This, this, is, this, is, this is one that I really want you to do. <laughs> all right. Okay, so let's start with uh, his first concept. After instinct come those actions which are conscious and automatic. 
He says by conscious action, and I know in your version, know, of yeah, book, yeah. It says rational, that's a different word. Yeah. Rational by conscious action is meant such an action as is known to the acting subject before its execution. Such an action as the acting subject can name, define, explain, can show its cause and purpose before its execution. In other words, it's something they think about and decide to do. Um, sometimes conscious actions are executed with such, with such swiftness as they appear to be unconscious. But in spite of this, it is conscious action if the acting subject knows what it is doing. Now, he says this is in comparison to automatic actions. These are actions which have been conscious for a given subject, but because of the frequent repetitions, they have become habitual and are performed unconsciously. And we've talked about this before, you know, getting up in the morning. A lot of those things we think are unconscious actions, getting into the shower, etc. Well, not unconscious, but we do them habitually. Um, but they are conscious actions. The acquired automatic actions of trained animals were previously conscious and uh, sorry, the acquired automatic actions of trained animals were previously conscious not in the animal but in the trainer. And I think this is what he's saying that that if thinking is done when it comes to animals, even though animals will do as as you have taught them, he's saying that the consciousness belongs the conscious action belongs to the trainer, not the animal. Such actions often. Yeah, and that's also apparent in humans as well. In fact, just as apparent. So that does not set us apart from animals. Every time that you send your child to school and your, your child gets programmed through the system in school and then thinks that they have to go to university because that's the only way you're going to get on and get a good job and, and, and succeed. Every time you believe in the system, you've been programmed. And the programming isn't yours. It's not instinctive. It's the programming of the trainer, not the, not the train. And I can give you a million other human examples. Let's take that one aside and let's just say that you decide you want to become... Um, a car mechanic. That's what you want to do as your, as your job. You're going to have to be trained and programmed into, do that, into how to do that. And it's not going to be your instinct that tells you how to strip a carburetor. It's going to be the trainer that shows you the process that they were trained to do. This is the right way of taking apart a carburetor, fixing it and putting it back on the car. So that doesn't separate us from animals. Carry on, Aspensky. Let's move on. Okay, so... I'll just I'll just finish the last sentence on that and then I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over again. Such actions often appear as conscious, but this is a complete illusion. The animal remembers the sequence of actions and therefore its actions appear to be considered an expedient. They really were considered, but not by it. And so he's saying it's what sets us apart to animals is Animals aren't actually conscious of making decisions, whereas we are. That's, I think that's what he's saying. And he's saying if they appear to make a decision, and he goes on further later on, he talks about, we'll say an animal senses danger, it appears to make a decision that it's sensing danger and, and to make a, a, a decision to do something about that. But he's saying that is just a, a pleasure-pain reaction instinctively does something or it makes a choice between various if it's, options if it's that, making that a choice got. that's a rational conscious decision if it's making i was a just choice, thinking that <laughs> oh that, that, well done steph you you speak because you're in this field as well so you know because there's a yeah. million places where we can tear this apart yeah well my first thought is okay well going by that explanation similar to what pete said we see it in humans 
parents teach their kids. That's the first thing I thought. We teach our kids how to speak, how to go to the bathroom, when to ask for help, what to eat, what to drink, all of those things, which, yeah, you could argue could be instinctive, but he's saying he considers those rational conscious choices in humans. But we also see that in a lot of animals. We see it in dogs. We see it in ducks and things like that when they are just out and about. And you'll see that the parents aren't necessarily training them to just eat and hide. They're training them to walk around, to have fun, to, you know, I've seen dogs train puppies to run and hide, like a hide and seek type of game. And by that sort of standard, well, you would do that with a child. So how does that make us so different? So again, I just don't think that he's actually created a good definition for that boundary he's wanting to. Okay. He says automatic actions are developed by the subject during its own life. So he, I think he's... He's trying to get at the fact, I mean, way down a few more pages on, he says animals may have reflex, instinct, and in some cases intuition, but they do not have conscious actions as they do not yeah, grasp they... concepts as, yeah, they, they as they do not have speech. So that, yeah, that's his crux of his whole argument. Yeah, I know. Building... And I, I can destroy it. I can destroy it now, but or do you want to wait till we come to these points as we get to them? Because yeah, let me, rep, let me just... we can wrap that now. Let me just let me just work up the the scaffold on I've, it. He's, you've got a cat. So, you've got a cat there. You've got a cat, haven't I you, Alice? Yes. Right, you ever seen a, you ever seen a cat looking at something and making a decision about whether it's going to have an interaction with it or not, or walk away from it? It's making conscious decisions. It's actually using its experience. It's looking at what it's seeing. Am I going to play with that as a toy? Am I going to walk away? Cats make conscious decisions. Obviously, dogs do as well, but the cat is a great example. And that's just this is just like off the top of the head. And it, by the way, it is a conscious decision. You can actually see that the cat is actually looking at this thing, this toy mouse. Am I going to jump at it or am I not? You know, uh, these are rational, conscious decisions that the animal is making. So he seems to think that they don't, that they only go to instinct. Well, I disagree. His, well, his point is it appears like they're making a conscious decision, but <laughs> yeah. they're not. They're, they're okay. either and I'd, li- and I'd like to know where... See, the idea is that we can interpret Spensky like that, you know, and I, like you've just done, and that's great. Okay, then tell me this. Where's his years of research into this one subject? Where's, where's the evidence of his research? So we just say that because he thinks that they only go to the point of instinct and everything else just seems to be a, a rational, conscious decision, that we have to accept what he says. Because I don't. And and the science of that subject now has moved on 100 years. And believe me, uh, it it will disprove him time and time and time and time and time again. And unlike Ospensky, the scientists who are doing the research would tell you that they're only scratching the surface. He seems to he he talks in certainties like this, which is very annoying on a subject where even me, just ordinary Joe, me in the street, has experience and evidence of him being plain wrong. I think it is important too to remember, you know, at the time, yes, he was doing, you know, his thing, and we didn't have as much maybe information about that. And I actually think that's what makes this really interesting because on one hand we can understand what he's saying at the time based on his evidence. But when we're interpreting in this day and age, we we should consider that there are so many things. And in particular, the thing that stuck out for me in that passage you just read, Ali, is um, 
he says it's because they don't have language, they don't have speech. Well, they now know orcas actually have ways of talking to one another and actually that's how they have their little pods and each one is like a different language they have which is why you can't you know if they're in captivity put two orcas that have been from two different pods together because they won't know how to communicate with each other even though they have these pods of 2030 that all have a language that they understand so you know we they do have a language and a speech in each of them, it's the same way with cats in the different noises they make, or dogs. You know, when one dog barks, the other one will respond and bark. So just because it's not a spoken word language that we would consider doesn't mean they don't have a language or their own variation of speech. And I think when he bases his argument on that, that's where it really starts to come undone. Yeah, Because that agree. argument is, yeah, and I will agree with you too, because that argument he's making is to say that animals don't have concepts. Like he's making a link between concepts and uh, and, and he's calling concepts a, a higher level of interaction with the world than just perceptions. Like from before, he's talked about having perceptions. He's you know how the world interacts with you, and you can say, "Oh, like uh, that looks like this, or that feels like that." But then when you start putting perceptions together into a group and calling it a concept. That sheep, that sheep, that sheep. Oh, they've all got wool. They've all got legs. You know, four legs. Whatever those groupings are, that that's a sheep. And we'll look at that from now on as anything that looks like that is a sheep. He's saying that they don't have that, but what he's saying is the reason that he doesn't believe they have concepts. And I think this is the crux of his whole argument with the the chapter is that they don't have language. And we'll get onto the lever in a minute too. That's another story. But um, if I look at the dog or the cat, they don't have a jawline like us. They don't have lips that can move and make the sound A-E-I-O-U. So, so they go woof, woof, woof. But just yeah. because they're going woof, woof, woof doesn't mean they're not communicating not and that they have some okay. language. As a child, I'm going to give you an example of that. There is a, a pattern of barking amongst dogs. I don't, I don't claim to be a great student of all this, but I did recognise this. There's something that goes... Roo, 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 roo. You'll hear it. You'll hear that pattern again I, I've and heard again. That. Yep, dogs being territorial and saying, "Be warned, this is this is my place." Um, and I identified that as a small child. It's like that pattern was happening all over the estate where I was growing up, where everybody had dogs, and I could recognise that pattern. And I watched it, and I saw when they did it. So, are you telling me that there's no language? I'm telling you that there is. I'm telling you that they communicate through sound he's trying to tell us um a point about consciousness and high higher forms of of, uh, of expression of life and he's using this to to make this point now whether whether the research that we have now was available to him or not it doesn't doesn't alter the fact that he's wrong <laughs> he just plain is wrong um let, let's let's move on to to see uh, how he can continues with this argument yeah because I mean, he is obviously building an argument up to make a point, as Suspensky mm. does. He, he kind of puts these blocks in place. Now, uh, he's expecting you to go along with each block and, you know, tick mm. it off as, yep, got it, got it, got it. So I, I'll i be interested on your points of view when we get to the end of the chapter, whether you think despite the fact that this doesn't make, isn't, isn't a valid point, whether his point that he's making at the very end still hangs. So that'll be an interesting 
um, uh, interesting to see. So I'm just going to te- I'm just going to um, read what what he has said about the concepts before we move on. So he's he's gone through and he's established the instinct and uh, reflex and intuition and speech. All these things are are available to us but what is available to the animal he says having established the difference between various kinds of actions let us ask the question in what manner does the psyche of an animal differ from that of a human being and that is all he's trying to say with all this uh, lead up with what is instinct and what is reflex what is uh, speech etc he said um out of the four categories of actions the two lower ones are accessible to animals uh, that is reflex and instinct, and in some rare cases, the highest, the intuitive. Now, I would disagree with that as well because I think animals have more intuition than people. I understand it. It's like they have that sort of extra sense. And the example I always go to is you see it, in, and again with dogs, dogs sometimes will naturally take a dislike to somebody um, if they think that there's an underlying aggressive nature, and even though you haven't necessarily seen it, and at least in my personal experience, it turned out to be pretty correct. Um, but they have that sort of instantly like, oh, no, I'm not keen on this. Something's wrong here. You just haven't sort of seen that yet. Or, um, you know, you hear the stories about, again, dogs uh, recognizing that there might be a fire or something. And even though the alarms haven't gone off or you can't smell the smoke, they'll go and get their owners and go because something's wrong. Or they bark when the storm's coming, all those types of things that kind of get put up into this, like they almost have this extra sense that we don't. And I think that's really interesting. Well, well, I think we actually have it, but I think they listen to it or in tuned into it more, more so than us. I think we're more distracted and we don't, Mm. we don't pay attention to that intuitive guide as much Mm. as we, we could, um, unless we, we actively make that conscious decision to, to listen to it. Whereas animals, they intuitively, yeah, it's a very, very good example. You know, they do, they do, and they know when something's wrong. Like if you're upset, yeah. they know. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, I have that's absolutely it. been crying on my bed for something and had a, my dog come and jump up and, and lie on me and sort of nuzzle me because they know I'm upset. And I, again, I've, I've had friends who have had that, or even I've had a friend with her cat has had that. So even the animals that you sort of think are known for being that standoffish will come and comfort yeah. when they're worried their their owner's upset. So I think we can, we can logically say, I'll, I'll just finish what he said after that, the category of conscious actions is inaccessible to animals. We, we disagree. This is proven, first of all, by the fact that animals do not have the power of speech as we have it. As has been shown before, the possession of speech is indissolubly bound up with the possession of concepts. Therefore, we may say that animals do not possess concepts. So we, Spensky, we disagree. And you don't have to do scientific experiments to to prove that. It's evident day to day. And I, I must agree with you too that I don't understand why Spensky couldn't see that for himself. Surely... I mean, I know in the in the chapter he's explained a way where you think that they've got a concept or you think that they're doing something that they've thought through. It's actually a reflex or it's a uh, in, instinct or it's it's uh, something that's disguised to look like. So that. he says. So he says. I don't have to so believe that just because just because no. he said it, and I don't. That's right, but that's how he's explained it away. When when, yeah, yeah. when we say it's obvious, this is not, not the case, he's gone, yeah, it might look obvious, but it's not what you think it is. So we're disagreeing with him. 
The other example he uses, and this one I do not get, he says it's about the lever. <laughs> like I went, what the? And yeah. and I, I I have the talking about having a little bit of fun. I, I do not deprive me of this right <laughs> because the lever. So let me see. Another proof of the absence of concepts in an animal is its inability to use a lever, i.e., its incapacity to come independently to an understanding of the principle of the action of a lever. So he is saying that you can train an animal to touch it, to, to move a lever, but it, it wouldn't necessarily come up with that idea itself without being trained. But here's, here's the fun bit. Yeah, go on. He then says, so, <laughs> oh, sorry, this, this makes me laugh. Okay, um, he's, so uh, our mastery of the lever differentiates man as strongly from the animal as does speech. If some learned, uh, sorry, if some learned Martians were looking at the earth, sorry, sorry, I have to contain myself, and should study it objectively from afar, despite looking at the place and going, I better lock the doors, um, <laughs> and should study it objectively from afar by means of a telescope, no, not hearing speech, not interacting into the subjective world of the inhabitants on Earth, not coming into contact with them, they would divide the beings living on Earth into two groups, those acquainted with the lever, the action of the lever, and those unacquainted with such action. And might I say, that comes comes in with the same logic as there are two types of people in this world. Those who believe there are two types of people in this world and those that don't. Exactly. <laughs> and that is the truth. That, and, that, so, and that is the nonsense of it. Well, one, thought, of the, one of the nonsenses of it, actually. I thought, are you serious? I cannot imagine aliens looking down and going, oh, look at that. they got concepts, haven't they? Because, look, there's a lever and they're using it. <laughs> well, my initial thought was, oh, God, we have multiple paradigms in psychology based on rats' abilities to figure out how to use a lever. Yep. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's so still going. You can go onto YouTube and see film of this actually happening. Like, I thought someone's going to call Skinner and tell him it's all wrong. It's yeah, just Jesus. What's his number? I'll just go. But it's just, you, he's I'm... an intelligent man. He's a very intelligent man. So this this is uh, I, I think he's making stuff up just to 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 make a point again, which we have. Well, we I've, yeah, we've been through that before that he does, and I think that this it actually um, really puts his foundations on shaky ground. And I will repeat that when your foundations are are like this, it's not good enough to just say, "Oh, well, let's go to the end of the chapter and see his conclusion," because people reading it will base what they think about his conclusion on whether or not he's convinced them with his foundation. And if his foundation is just wet sand and the house is falling down, believe me, they don't believe in this solidity of the house. But why Why do you think he has put a chapter like this in? And, cause I, and I'll tell you why I think he has. Because okay. he's well, trying... Well, you tell me then. 
Okay, my, my thoughts are that he's put a chapter like this in because he's talking about a lot of concepts that you actually can't explain to someone or prove to someone without analogy or them experiencing it. So he's, he's, he's working towards having an expanded consciousness and understanding, maybe having the experience outside of the third, third dimension that language can't explain, that analogy can come close, but it can't, can't get you over the line. So I think he's looking for something that he can hang his hat on to say, well, hang on, what have we got that we can see and, and we can we can prove is lower and higher in, in our our experience. He's trying to bring his concepts into something about our experience, which he doesn't do well here. If we're if we're investigating the book, then we've got to we've got to actually see what we see. We have to read what he read. You said something interesting earlier on. He's an intelligent man, so he should have done better. He he's accepting these as truths. And yes, we can say that there is a, there's a cultural relevance here from the time in which he was living. But that cultural re relevance that tells us that animals are a lower form uh, of life is the same cultural relevance that allowed him to call um, indigenous peoples savages and primitives. That's exactly... Yeah. So you, you, you can't pick and choose with this for me. You, for me, you cannot. Uh, you know, and I will not give him a pass because of what he comes to in his conclusion at the end of the chapter. The, the conclusion is stands upon these premises and these premises do not hold. I don't I don't know. I mean, people may have a different view of it, but I I I can't ignore the things that he puts in the chapter that lead to his conclusions. I, yep, I, I agree with helped. you because I, I've glanced over things and gone, oh, yeah, well, I got it. Oh, no, don't get that, whatever. And now that we're having these discussions, I'm going, yeah, yeah you're right. That's not true. That's And if we were sitting with Dispensky in a forum like, you know, cigars and brandy and, and chatting away, uh, we possibly would be having, <laughs> yeah, robust discussions <laughs> about it. And, um, and I dare say, Dispensky may well concede defeat because the evidence, you, you don't have to, to look at a Skinner experiment. You can... Do you know I, where I think he has a problem, Al, is I don't think his analogies are good. Mm. He, you know, I really think he's, he is a poor picture drawer. He does, I understand that what this man is trying to, to get across in, in, this, in this work. Well, you know... That... Look, some, some analogies yeah. that he's he's put forward have really resonated with me and I've gone, oh, my yeah. God, I get that. Okay. Other ones I've looked at and I've gone, yeah, not quite. But so far in this half of the chapter, this second half up to this point, we've given him the thumbs down. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to quote again. The psychology of animals is in general very misty to us. The infinite number of observations made concerning all animals, from elephants to spiders, and the infinite number of anecdotes about the mind, spirit and moral qualities of animals change nothing of all of that. We represent animals to ourselves either as living automatons or as stupid men. Well, well you there you have it. Should, I mean, he should speak for himself. <laughs> I, I watch, you, you talked about the cat before. Sorry, Steph, I'll come yeah. to you in a second. No, you no, talked about the cat before. And I have... Two cats. I'm minding my daughter's cat. And my daughter's cat is very, very large. And he uses the fact that he is ginormous around the bottom area 
to uh, punish my other cat because what he does is he jumps on him and he doesn't bite him or scratch him. He just squashes him. And you see four legs sticking out from under him, which is cat A, and cat B is just on top of him. But you watch when he decides to do this. He'll sit there and he'll get a look in his face and there's there's poor Grilke relaxing, sprawled out in the sun. And you look down and there is Miso and he's looking and he's thinking and he's looking for the angle to come around so that, that Grilke doesn't see him. And he, he gets to a point and he just this jack-in-a-box thing. Up he comes and then squash. And he has contemplated it. He has thought about it. He is probably, if he could laugh out loud, he'd be trying to hold back his sniggering before he does such an action. So, you know, it is thought out. It's not an automatic reaction. There's Rookie lying in the sun. I'll squash him. No, it's his, it's, he's, he's being a little so-and-so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> By choice. Absolutely. Just, and again, the, just oh, sorry. Go on, Steph. No, you go, Steph. I was going to say, well, yeah, the example I had similar with, uh, with with the dog was, you know, my dog, if you stop patting her because um, you need to do something, she'll storm off, but she'll turn around and see if you're looking at her storming off. And if not, she will come and tap you until you <laughs> look at her and then she'll walk off and then with the tail down, she'll turn around to, like continuously to make sure you're watching her. Like, it's not like she's thought about it. She knows exactly what she wants out of you. She wants yep. you to see that she's angry at you because you stopped patting her. It's the only reason she'll do it. So it's, okay, she's clearly had this thought process. She gets this concept of guilt and shaming. And I'm going to let you know you f***ed me off. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you see, there are examples like this, aren't there, everywhere. Yeah. I just, I, I just, I don't want to um, discuss this, but I just, just want to make a, a little point about that um, paragraph that you said. You know, the psycho- psychology of animals is, in general, very misty to us. The infinite number of observations made concerning all animals, from elephants to spiders, and the infinite number of anecdotes, blah, blah, blah. What, what was Spensky's profession? Mathematician. So um, surely he would know that we don't have infinite observations of these animals or infinite um, anecdotes uh, to describe what we've seen. Don't use don't use language like that when you're trying to be precise and scientific, which he is, and I, I find him pretentious. But let, let, let's moving on. I, you know, things like that shouldn't be. You you can't let things like that go. You because somebody can't be imprecise one minute and we let it go, but then we have to consider that he's being precise when he's incredibly vague and downright wrong in another paragraph. These things add up to what he's done. I've said it before, he needed an editor and he didn't have it, clearly didn't have an editor or he only had an editor that was frightened of him or wanted to make him feel good. Well, we'd have to have a look. So I, I, my understanding is he gave it to colleagues that living in New York and they're the ones that translated it without his knowledge. But remember, there's um, a difference nonetheless... between translation and editing. Uh, you know, that, that's got editing. Translation isn't the same as editing. Uh, if if his original um, manuscript had been edited previously, had been bothered to take it to somebody to investigate before translation, these things would have been picked up, and the translations that we now have wouldn't have cons- wouldn't have had these these yeah, points. Yeah, actually, you I, I will concede defeat on that one because from memory, his first publication in Russian 
was published in 1912. And I was going to say, I think he was busy getting out of the Russian Revolution, but the Russian Revolution hadn't happened in 1912. So, yes, all right, so, because it had been previously published in Russian, from my understanding. So I mean, frankly, um, we are doing the editing now. Yeah, well, in in part, in, in a way. We'll send him a bill. We'll send him a bill. <laughs> anyway, I'm going to move on. So he makes, now he, he, the point he is making here is he is saying that we, as humans, make the mistake of lumping animals all together and going, well, they are inferior, which is what he's himself done. Yeah, you can speak and, for uh, yeah, and he's And he's saying, um, could we represent to ourselves and recreate mentally the logic of an animal, it would greatly help us to understand our own logic and the laws of our own thinking. And so he's saying um, we too much confine ourselves within the circle of our own psychology. We fail to imagine any other and think involuntarily that the only possible sort of soul is such as we ourselves possess. But it is this illusion which prevents us from understanding life. If we could participate in the psychic life of an animal, understand how it perceives, thinks and acts, we would find much of unusual interest. Uh, and, and this is where he's saying, okay, well, not all animals act the same way. Uh, if, you, if you lump um, things like spiders and elephants together, they're obviously different and they behave differently and they have different talents, but we're, we're lumping them together. And it's because we are trying to say, this is how we perceive the world and reflect that onto animals. And I think the point you made before about speech, we're saying well, they don't have language. He's, he's saying, well, just because it's not a language like we are used to hearing, he's not calling, well, Spensky's not calling communication between animals as a language and and so he's basically falling into the same trap that he's now saying humankind fall into. Before all else, would 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 come to understand the conditionality and relativity of our own logical construction, and with it the conditionality of our entire conception of the world. I believe he's trying to say, if we if we stopped trying to impose everything the way we see it onto other creatures, and looked at them for what they were then we might learn something and it's interesting that he's just gone through this whole three or four pages doing exactly what he's now saying we shouldn't be doing that's the one i either think he's just not great at structuring his thoughts or he's trying to be incredibly meta <laughs> and i'm worried it's not the latter no <laughs> yeah. i think it's the former yeah, and actually that's something I know I, I did discuss with Pete earlier that really kind of gets me where I think, you know, he keeps doing that. He keeps stating something and then demonstrating it himself and it just, to me, undercuts the structure of his argument because I think, well, you know, you, you're clearly aware of this to an extent. You've written it out and then you've still gone and done that. But why would he do that? Why would he say? Because he's not as talented as you're making out. I'll give you a straight answer there. One reason may well be that he's not as talented as you really want to give him credit for as a writer. Not as a thinker, as a writer. And that may well be the reason. I don't think, you know, you can analyse that as much as you want uh, in another way, but let, but don't throw that one into the fire because that really could be the reason. Okay, well, all right, 
So we're agreed that he has just just accused mankind of doing something he had just done himself in the last few pages and said and 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 identified it as an issue towards moving forward. So from that he <laughs> So moving he goes, forward. So moving forward, he brings back his old pals, Aristotle and Bacon, and then attempts to... I like to... the idea of Aristotle and Bacon, because I thought he was a vegetarian. <laughs> was he? <laughs> uh, it wasn't Was that a joke? It, almost. <laughs> almost. So, he talks about um, Aristotle's logic. And he's saying that logic was propounded by Aristotle and Bacon. So these these pieces of logic apply to the human condition. So Aristotle said, A is A, A is not A. Everything is either A or not A. So that's his three ways of seeing the world. It's this, it's not this, and everything is either this or not this. That's coming back to my two types of people in the world analogy. Then he said, it's possible to represent it more clearly in this way. I am I, I am not I. All in the world must be either I or not I. So it's you're either me or you're not me. That's Aristotle. Now Bacon goes a little differently. He says, that which was A will be A. That which was not A will not be A. Everything was and will be either A or not A. He then, so he's, he's given us these two types of logic that, are, that, that have been propounded a long time ago. And then he says, Upon these formulae, acknowledged or unacknowledged, all our scientific experience is built, and upon them, too, is shoemaking founded. Because if a shoemaker could not be sure that the leather bought yesterday would be leather tomorrow, in all probability, he would not venture to make a pair of shoes, but would find some other more profitable employment. He's drawing, um, he's drawing that to a, a throwaway line he used earlier saying um, that, you know, it's all about shoemaking, which I didn't get when he said it, but then he's brought it into context here. The formulae and logic, such as those of both Aristotle and Bacon, are themselves deduced from the observation of facts and do not and cannot include anything except the contents of these facts. They are not the laws of reasoning but the laws of the outer world as it is perceived by us or the laws of our relation to the outer world. And that's all very, I think that's all very deep because I think what he's saying is that Aristotle and Bacon have just stated the obvious and they haven't done any reasoning whatsoever. Well, actually, the, the both of those are... Um logical mathematical equations and they only suit certain um processes because i mean they are logic gates and i mean you if you study philosophy you you have to do logic and and it is a mathematical formula here's a problem with it um just one problem and there are there are many the the bacon one which he seems to think is um better than Aristotle's observational formula of logic, states that everything, uh, you know, that which was not A will be not A. How about this? If I put milk in a particular vessel overnight in certain circumstances, believe me, it won't be milk in the morning when I come up. It'll be yogurt because I make yogurt. So that which was milk in the morning won't be milk. 
Now, you could say that the chemical constituency of yogurt is the same as milk, except that it isn't. Um, mm, very true. If if we put something, uh, if we put some or, organic material like oil through various processes, it will become plastic. Um, anything, so, look, a piece of carbon, coal, will intrinsically be carbon, but it's it will be changed under pressure and heat. Things things do change. So, look, I'm not knocking uh, Bacon or Aristotle here. I'm just saying that the way that Uspensky has used those formulas doesn't carry him forward in the way that he wants to. Because we can easily see circumstances where A will not be A if we bring time into the equation. Aristotle's observational one in the moment is much purer than the one that Bacon expanded. And Bacon had a different idea for it. And he, he, would, he would understand that this, you've taken a part of his writing and a part of his, his thought on, on this area of logic, and you made it seem as though that's all there is. Bacon was perfectly aware of transformational elements within nature. For example, you know, uh, things do decay and change and their, their chemical form, the chemical constituencies of things that decay don't tend to be the same. Uh, if you took, an exact, uh, for example, a piece of uranium, um, that decays over time and it, it becomes not uranium. It becomes plutonium or it becomes something else. Well, actually, plutonium will become uranium. It's the other way around because of the way it gives off. But, you know, things do, things do change. Bacon allows for this. Yeah, Bacon allows for that. So, yeah, carry on, though. Any, anyway, I just, I just think it's strange to use those analogies. But we'll, we'll go. Well, yeah, I, I guess where he's going with it is he's, he's still on his quest to show that animals uh, have a different psyche to us. They might and have a different he's, one. He's still banging on about the concept bit. He's that he's he's still he's what, what he's actually done is he's trying to back up his belief that animals don't have concepts with Aristotle and Bacon. That's what I, I think. And and Aspensky does this. He brings in other people to back him up by quoting what they've written, and then go and then says, "Well, you know, they've well, written this. That's acceptable." And then therefore, it, it applies. Well, if I was trying to bring Sir Isaac Newton in to help me with my ideas on gravity and the way that the way that objects relate to each other in the universe, and I started quoting Isaac Newton's work on optics, uh, that wouldn't help, would it? Uh, just because I've used the name Isaac Newton, I've used him out of context and with the wrong with the wrong area of research. Uh, and while that's a more extreme example, I think there's bits of that that go on here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, where he goes to, and there's a little bit in between all of this. Again, it's all about animals not having concepts. And he does say that uh, he believes that animals say a horse will see uh, a house, like a, a horse from cart days, a horse stops at this house and then he stops at another house. He's not actually knowing, he's, he's not actually deciding to do the route that he's walking along. He just remembers that house. He remembers the other house, and that's why he stops. What it's about the paragraph game. before it? What about the paragraph before it? The logic of animals will, will differ from ours, first of all, from the fact that it will not be general. It will exist separately for each case, for each perception. So it, will, it won't see, the horse, in other words, won't see a row of houses. 
it will just say this is a house that i know this yes. is is something that i know and it won't say they're all houses however um that's a perception from his point of view and probably from ours but if you look at other areas of humanity they would look at us and say that we are inferior beings based on that logic because for example eskimos have famously have 50 words for snow and the fact that we only have the one word for snow they would look at us in puzzlement and think of us as inferior creatures based on this logic true true so you know so so you know to me again this this doesn't this isn't working for me but you know no I, i'm quite well, happy he... to go through it yeah, well, I think it's worthwhile going through it nonetheless because we, we are oh, agreed. Yeah, it is, it is. We are three agreed that it is not, not working. <laughs> but I want to, I, I want to tie in. Give me my notes. I have things like drivel. Oh, I can <laughs> see. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, the, the book that, um, the book that, that is up on archive.org, the 1920 published version, is a photocopy of somebody's book and they've got handwritten yeah. notes on it. Oh, and wow. probably about, four chapters in, there's a note at the bottom of one page and it says, the first decent point made so far. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, this guy is probably reading this book and he's scribbling over it, you know, nah, nah, nah. And that was back in the 1920s. So there you have it. Can, I, can I just put, that's a great point. Can I just say that somebody that's going through it in enough detail that they're writing notes um, isn't an idiot. And if that's no. so, you know, when we when we come to these conclusions that we shouldn't just accept, oh, he's the great Spensky, we should understand that he is just Spensky. Now, in this field of writing on consciousness, and we're not discussing anybody else other than Spensky, but I could point you to people that do this a thousand times better and more succinctly. But we are, we are discussing this book. So let, let's move on with his concepts because I'm enjoying this. I'm enjoying the and I, and I do want to say, I mean, I know we're, we're giving out, but this is the point. We are having a, a discussion about this book in general. I, I will still say I've, I've loved the book and it is really worth getting to the end. So do not be discouraged by the fact that no, we no, are, no. I, I are giving out. You know, there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot to come from it. Exactly. So... I'm just going to continue on because we do need to get to the end of this, but I just want to tie in why he's brought in Aristotle and Bacon. And he's then, he's then using these same reasons, reasonings to apply to the logic of animals. So he says the logic of animals were we, we to attempt to express it by means of the formula of Aristotle and Bacon would be as follows. The formula A is A, the animal will understand. That house is that house. It will say, as it were, I am I. But the formula A is not A, it will not be capable of understanding. Not A is indeed a concept. Animal with reason that would reason thus, this is this, that is that, this is not that, or this man is this man, this man is that man, this man is not that man. Now, here's the thing. He just said that not A is indeed a concept. But then he said that the animal would say, not this man. So, so that's, what, what is that's that? conceptualizing. That's it. it means that the animal is conceptualizing. See, I would have said if he was trying to make the point, the animal would say, this, that house, that house, that house, that house, yeah. and make no distinction that that house was not that house because he hasn't got a concept of house. He's just I gone. Know. I t totally agree with you. 
I mean, I, I have absolutely no idea why this intelligent man, by the way, a mathematician should know logic better than he does. He would have failed Logic 101 at Auckland University. By the way, I'm not saying that facetiously. With this explanation of, of that, the simplest logic gate that we know, he would have failed. I, and I know that because I've done it. So, you know, he would have failed. Again, I asked the question. So, okay, so he's, he's bringing all this in to say, although animals are all different in how they interact with their bodies and the world, we, we lump them all in together as animals. Among the, and I'll quote, among the animals known to us, even among domestic animals, the psychological differences are so great as to differentiate them into entirely separate planes. We ignore this and place them all under the single rubric animals. And then he goes on to say that this is our problem with, with then using animals to understand our own logic because we're not even going deeply into the different psychologies of animals to then look that perhaps we as, as a human race have different psychologies. And here's his quote. We mix together many things that are entirely different. Our divisions are often incorrect and this hinders us when it comes to the examination of ourselves. If one speaks in terms of evolution, it is more correct to say that the cat and dog are different evolutions as opposed to a group of animals, that they are different evolutions of animals. Just as in all probability, not one but several evolutions are simultaneously going forward in humanity. And it's like he's done this great big example of animals different from us and then saying, well, you know what, folks, you, you've just done a, a, a bad thing in comparing animals to us because you're just lumping animals all in together and really what you should be doing is looking at all different evolutions of animals within the species of animals and maybe, and this is, I think this is just, this, again, this throwaway line, that he's then saying, that just in all probability, not one, but several evolutions are simultaneously going forward in humanity. He's saying, in my opinion, that humanity has varying degrees of evolution within the race. And, and I'm thinking he's, he's right. talking about evolution of consciousness, not necessarily evolution of physical. I think he's talking about evolution of consciousness. I actually think there's um, inherent racism as well in that. Because he's it's already possible. he's already shown he's already shown us his colours. When he's saying when he throws that line in there, I I now start questioning what he means, and I, I start I start thinking back to him seeing native peoples as primitive and savage. Uh, those are the words that were used in the translation of the book that I've got, and and so I'm I'm looking at that. And by the way, mine is is a, a more recent translation than the one you've got. So these people are doing their best to. To, to be be true to what he's saying, I've got. They're not trying to give him a pass on anything. I'm I'm kind of worried about what he necessarily means with that. I I can't know. I'm not him. But he has he has pinned his colours to the mast earlier. So when he's talking about um, you know different evolutions going on within humanity, I'm wondering. With that sentence, the evolution simultaneously mm. going forward, uh, several evolutions simultaneously yeah. going because forward. Because he's remember, he spent yeah. the entire chapter telling us that there are higher and lower forms. He spent the entire chapter telling us. So now when he just throws that in about, and even within humanity, 
this is how I'm reading it, even with humanity, there are higher and lower forms of evolution. So anyway, that's how I've read it. Yeah, well, of, you know, or, I guess that's, only that's me. a cliffhanger. That, that is literally only me, but I, that's how I've read it. Oh, that's a cliffhanger. It could, he could, that could be his 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 uh, way of thinking. And but I do get him. He may be very ignorantly racist in that sense. If he's if he if he is referring to the evolution of a people as opposed to consciousness. But we, I you guess, know, we'll see. I he mean, does... just just as a historical point, though, uh, as a privileged white male and an urban metropolitan European privileged white male in the early part of the 20th century, he would be very unusual if he wasn't racist. True. He would, he would, he would be very unusual. Other than people that actually went out to empire and, you know, and, and anthropologists yeah. well, and so on. Well, I suppose, and, and I think that's what I say, it's an unconscious, I, I think. Yeah, that, yeah it's, it's, I, it's it an unconscious racism. Yeah, but do you know what like, that would be? Well, that would be tr that would be trained behaviour that he talked about earlier in the yes. chapter. Yes, and I guess yeah, it's interesting that he's thinking about it, but he's not not reflecting it back into his own way of but, being you know, in the that, world. Part, part of the part of the in interesting stuff about what we're doing when we go through these chapters is that it is finding out these 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 little points and and pointing them out. I I, I get I get a lot of I get a lot from doing that um, and look and trying to trying to guess what it must have been like for him to write this. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to go Do to the last sentence. I think this is a cliffhanger sentence. This is what he finishes on: the recognition of several independent and, in brackets, mechanically equivalent evolutions developing entirely different properties would lead us out of a labyrinth of endless contradictions in our understanding of man. That's not where mine ends. Mine and mine. Oh, is that end. right? Would you that, Would oh, you yeah, like me to read what I've that's got? That's why here? I said this... he might be being really meta. <laughs> okay, right. Let me read this. This now, the recognition of several independent and, from one standpoint, equivalent evolutions developing entirely different properties would lead us out of a labyrinth of endless contradictions in our understanding of man, and would show us the path to the only real and important evolution for us, hyphen, the evolution into Superman. This word and concept has been left out of certain translations for a reason. This is the Ubermensch of Nietzsche, and he was in the occult societies. I can't stress this enough. He was moving in the occult, the very occult societies that were developing the concept of the superior human, the ubermensch that had been first detailed by Nietzsche and then taken away from Nietzsche as a concept and that developed in the occult societies. Why has your translation not got that last bit? The evolution and my translation, my translation is, is the early one, 1920. Yeah, I know, that's later. what I'm saying. What we what we're doing is that somebody has taken that out because already it was there was this duality. There are people. So why have they put it back in a later? Why have they put it back into later? Because I think I think now because because now what we don't like is the erasing of history for political purposes. Although we are coming back to that now, we're we're virtually going into a book burning era. But uh, 
you know, uh, the, we did have a we did have a few decades where um, the truth was perceived to be valuable. So, what are you saying? He, are you saying? I'm just saying that the the uh, what I said earlier on about influences and and where Uspensky was and perhaps partially where he was coming from is right there in that little bit that's missing from your translation, but it's right here in mine. I'm just telling you that he was coming from an area that was already seeing separations in the conscious evolution of humankind and that some um, evolutions were considered to be more equal than others. He was already in that area. But don't don't kid yourself that these societies weren't there and they weren't and that they weren't looking for higher races of man. Like when Gurdjieff goes out and, and seeks um, uh, conversations with, you know, these exceptional people, these ex you know, meetings with exceptional men and so on. He's going out looking at things in Tibet that he considers to be much more highly consciously evolved than us, that these these great um, conscious masters all live in these great um, energetic centers of the world. The theosophists were the same. Blavatsky will talk about these these great masters. The, the Jewish occultism does exactly the same, and it, it will, you know, in Kabbalah, Kabbalism, uh, which the Uspensky um, was also involved with, uh, it does talk about these these higher evolved um, human consciousnesses. So you know, it would be it would be very very difficult to perceive of him not seeing certain groups of uh, parts of humanity as having a superior conscious and cultural evolution to others. It would be very, very difficult for me to see okay. him uh, not coming from there. Remember, nobody was enlightened the way we are now <laughs> from from that point of view from uh, in those days. Well, very few. Well, they were secret societies, weren't they? Yeah. They were secret they societies. Were secret. And, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, we, didn't know we, what was going we, on. Well, like you would you know, now, I mean, but then, back then, people would, would have to be in society. Difficult. And I mean, yeah, and, yeah you know. uh, and he was, he was moving in those circles. You, know, you, mm. you didn't even know that, most people wouldn't even know that theosophy was a thing. I mean, it's not, it's not like it was on the front pages of a tabloid newspaper advertising, get this fantastic book by Helena Blavatsky. Yeah. When he talks about evolution, he's talking about natural evolution. Yeah, because I feel like, because that sentence does change it for me, because that's why I'd made the comment, like, maybe he is just trying to be really meta, because that's his end sentence. And I always took it as consciousness. So I thought, oh, well, maybe he is just trying to be, you know, showing I'm going to do this, but even still doing that does undermine his own argument. But now I feel like that addition of a sentence in yours, Pete, and I don't know enough of the history, I don't know his history, I don't know, you know, I think we could definitely speculate if it was in the original or if it was added, but either way it comes into it does change the perception and interpretation of it for me. Um, yeah. But it, it'll be interesting when we talk about the chapter, he does talk about the Superman, because that is, he does go through that mm -hmm. concept. Um, I'll yes. be interested to see, so looking at it from maybe a different point of view now. Yeah, that'll be really well, interesting. <laughs> well, the thing is that, you know, we can look at it from two points of view. We can either look at the Superman from the way that it was hijacked, politically in the 20s yeah. and then particularly the 30s and and since you know because this is this is an ongoing thing um or we can look at it as as a purely uh speculative idea about the consciousness of any human being 
Um, so we can look at it from a point of view that that's non-political. Maybe you know, and I think that's the only way we can go forward. Otherwise, yeah, we otherwise we keep having this the, the pointing this. Out. Having read the whole book, I think Despensky's whole point is looking at the at, at expanding consciousness. So I would like to possibly think of it that way. You know, I think what you've had to say is, is very valid. And I hadn't thought about it before. It's interesting because I feel like, yeah, now I'll be doing it, looking at it in two different uh, ways. It's interesting how one sentence can really, really have such this, an impact. I know. I, I, was, I was surprised when I saw it because it had meant it's only because of the discussion that we've been having for this second half of this chapter that suddenly it just like boom, light bulbs. Well, in chapter nine, we do not get to the Superman, and that is our yeah. next podcast. Will be chapter chapter nine. I look forward to that uh, that discussion, and thank you very much for having this rollicking good discussion on the second part of chapter eight with me today. Wow! Yeah, that's thank you for inviting us along. Thanks, everyone, for listening.